14, 1 through 11, under the heading of Losing or Loving Jesus. Uh, Okay, let's see here. Okay, Mark 14, we are getting close to, in Mark, we're getting close to the uh, crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So these are, this is like the last days of Jesus. And uh, let me read these verses. Well, let me pray and then we'll read the verses and dive into it. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, this day where we can worship you in this time now, where we can spend in more of an informal discussion of your word. We pray that you give us wisdom and insight Um, that we would understand your word better, and that we would come to love Jesus more. We ask it for his sake. Amen. Mark 14, 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad, and they promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So, Mark 14, 1 through 11, losing or loving Jesus. This is, um, I think, a great devotional passage to look at. That's why I chose it for today. What's interesting is it also gives us uh, an interesting view into a a important hermeneutical uh, point in Mark's writings. Uh, What are what is hermeneutics? Does anybody know? It's a big word. Yeah, it has to do with the interpretation of reading scripture. How do you interpret it, and how do you apply it? And so. When you're looking at any portion of scripture, you want to know what genre am I in? You know, am I in the Old Testament? Am I New Testament? I'm reading a prophetical book. Am I reading a gospel? These kinds of things. Uh, Because every genre has different ways in which they present information, and that's going to help you interpret and therefore apply. And each author, biblical author, uh, has unique ways. They're normal people just like us, and they have unique ways in which they express and convey their ideas. Um, And Mark has uh, something that he loves to do time and time and time again, and it is called 
the, if there's a seminary student, they can finish this for me, or somebody else. It's called the Markin. Does anybody know? Yeah. Good job. Was that my wife? Yeah. She's heard this 20 times. So, the Markin sandwich. I don't, is there an H there? There's going to be today because I don't feel like erasing it. So, the Markin sandwich. Um, what do, we, what do you think we, uh, we mean by the Mark and Sandwich? If you look at Mark 14, 1 through 11, what do you think they're talking about? It has to do with the composition of Mark's writing. Is there anything about this passage uh, that, that looks sandwichy to you? Yeah, go ahead. Perfect. That's absolutely right. Uh, right in the middle, verses 3 through 9, there's this scene about uh, the woman who uh, gives up this uh, very costly ointment to show her love for Jesus, right? But on either end of that, uh, Mark has a story about the betrayal of Jesus. Uh, in the first section, it's about how the chief priests and the scribes are they're trying to put the plan together. And at the last section, it's about how this plan comes together through the betrayal of Jesus, uh, 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 betrayal of Jesus by Judas. And so they call this a Mark and Sandwich. It's something he does very often where he begins a story, he leaves it entirely, in t- he leaves it and tells another story in its entirety. So we could say there's an A section, right? That would be the first few verses. And then he, he leaves A and he's going to say, we're going to come back here. But then he tells a B section in its entirety, and then he returns to A. So that's not ABBA, the singing group, but that's the sandwich. Okay, A, B, A. The B section is stuffed in between, uh, you know, these, this, is our, this is the piece of bread, the pieces of bread, this is the, the meat of the sandwich. And Mark does this numerous times. Uh, it, it was not something that he invented, so you read... Uh, it, you know, old te- uh, I mean, ancient literature, and this is, this is a common rhetorical device. You find it in other Gospels, but they call it the Markin sandwich because Mark, Mark does it more than anybody else. Um, let me give you so- two really obvious examples. Uh, one would be in Mark chapter 11. If you look at 11, verse 12, what's that story about? So the first example is Mark 11, 12, and the FF, that means and following. So what, what, what is Mark 11, 12 about? What, what scene? You guys all know this scene. What's going on? What's that? No, no, uh, verse 12. Yeah, the fig tree. He just sees it and he does what to it? He curses the fig tree. Okay, and then we're all kind of like, what's that about? Well, Mark doesn't tell us. Instead, he leaves that section, that would be the A section, and he goes and he tells this story in its entirety about Jesus cleaning out, uh, cleansing the temple by charging out the money changers, right? That's verses 15 through 19. And then look at verse 20, the lesson from the withered fig tree. He returns to that, example, or to that earlier story which he had left off and gives the full picture. And what that you need to understand about Mark and Sandwich is you need all three points, all three uh, component parts to understand it. So as a preacher, or even just somebody who's reading it, if you want to understand what's going on, 
you don't preach or read in isolation the story of him cursing the tree, and then read in isolation the story of him cleansing the temple, and then read in isolation the story of the, the lesson from the withered fig tree. They all go together. You need all three to be able to understand them. In fact, the cleansing of the temple is the explanation of the fig tree. Just as the fig tree was barren, uh, so the temple had become barren in, in a religious sense. So that's a very famous example, and the other gospel writers use that same method when they tell that story. Uh, and there's another example, and I didn't write it down, so I have to find it, but it's the story uh, where Jesus heals uh, the woman with the uh, 12-year-long discharge. Uh, unclean woman. What is that? Mark chapter... It's in Mark. Thank you. Yes, it is. Mark 5, verse 21. Uh, heals a woman and Jairus' daughter, right? So what, what happens? The story begins with Jairus coming to Jesus. That's the A section of this sandwich. That's the first slice of bread. And it says, come, I need you to heal my daughter. And Jesus is walking along the way, and he gets interrupted, and the story gets put on hold. And there's a scene told in its entirety about this unclean uh, woman, right? And then in verse, so you look at verse 34. What does Jesus say to this woman? Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, be healed of your disease. Well, verse 35 picks up the Jairus story, which had been left again. So we had A, B, now we're back to A again. It says, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead, quit troubling the teacher. Uh, But Jesus said to the ruler of synagogue, do not fear. What What does he say? Only believe. And here's how you see how the whole thing goes together. The faith that Jairus had just witnessed from that woman who had been suffering for 12 years is the answer to to the trial that he's going through with his daughter. The stories go together. The faith that you just saw from that woman, Jairus, now I need you to implement that faith. Have faith that I can heal even your daughter. So these are some examples of Mark and Sandwiches where you need the whole thing uh, together to make sense of it, right? We needed that middle section about the woman and her faith to understand the test that, that Jairus was going through. We needed the, the uh, section of the temple being cleansed to understand what Jesus was trying to do about the fig trees, and vice versa. And so the same thing happens with us as we approach Mark 14, 1 through 11. We need or, or the middle section about the love that Jesus has shown by this woman through her gift of the costly ointment helps us to understand, it's a contrast to what's happening on either end about these chief priests who uh, are desiring to kill Jesus. So we're going to dive into that. My guess was, it's been about a month, but um, about a month ago, most of you either gave or received uh, a gift around Christmas time, unless you've completely you know, cut off all ties to consumerism. I guess that, like, there's at least one gift that you gave or you received. And, and when we give gifts, we give gifts to people, here's another guess of mine, people that we love, right? If we really don't, can't stand someone, we generally don't give them gifts. Uh, but we give gifts out of love. Have you guys ever heard of Gary Chapman's Five Love Languages? Uh, you know, that's one of the love languages, uh, giving gifts, um, 
but it goes beyond Gary Chapman. He gets that from Scripture, right? This is how God loves us. What's a famous verse that tells us that God, uh, that God shows his love through gift giving? Famous verse, most famous verse. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. He gave a gift, and the gift was his son. And because we're made in his image, it's right for us to want to give. We give because we love. And so what we see that to be true of this unnamed woman in Mark chapter 14. She, I'm sorry, yeah, Mark chapter 14. She shows her love for Jesus by giving a gift. But as I've said, that's not all we see. We see that it's a, it's a classic Mark and sandwich, and that section of love is tucked between two verses on either side that speak of, of hatred. It's complete contrast. In the middle is love, on the other end are hatred, such hatred that these men are willing to kill Jesus. So we have Judas and we have this unnamed woman. They're on complete opposite ends of the a spectrum of how one could, could relate to Jesus. On the one end, you have the woman who loves him. On the other end, you have Judas who, well, I've titled this Losing or Loving Jesus. She loves him. Judas is totally lost to Jesus. And we could put it like this. What is the sign of loving Jesus? How can we know that we love Jesus? It's when you are willing to give anything for him. Okay? I want you to, if you're writing things down or whatever, this is an important point. How, how, how do you know you love Jesus? When you're willing to give anything for him. What's the sign that you're lost to Jesus? It's when you're willing to gain anything over him. Right? That's the contrast between this woman and Judas. She gives. She gives a costly gift. She's willing to do so because she, she knows it will, it will give her Jesus. I'm, I'm willing to give anything for him. Judas he gained something, right? We know 30 pieces of silver. He's willing to gain anything over Jesus. So that's, that's what we're looking at in this passage. Loving Jesus versus losing Jesus. And that's the question to us. Are we in love with Jesus? Are we lost to him? Now, the way I, uh, I usually take Mark and sandwiches is I, I take the two sections, or the, the, the A sections and the B sections together. So we're going to look first at... Um, Losing Jesus, so we're looking at the first two verses and the last two verses together, okay? That's what we're going to do first. Um, the chapter uh, begins, as I've said, we're nearing um, two days before Passover. So just to give you that timeline, Jesus, Passover is Thursday. Uh, Jesus is crucified Friday. We're really close to the death of Christ. And two days in Hebrew terminology really would mean the next day. You have this day. And tomorrow, there's two days. So this takes place on Wednesday, right? So this scene is Wednesday, Last Supper, Thursday, Jesus crucified, Friday. Um, the passion or the suffering of Christ has begun. The Sanhedrin are plotting against him. So they're putting their heads together and they're trying to come up with some way to trap Jesus, to get rid of him. And little did they know that their wish would come true through supposedly one of Jesus' closest friends, Judas Iscariot. So you see that in verses 10 through 11. Um, let's read there. Let's read those again. Then Judas Iscariot. Notice how Mark is 
really intentional about reminding us that he's one of the inner circle. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. Uh, and he, so he voluntarily goes, and what does it say? They were glad. They couldn't have been happier. Right? This couldn't have worked out any better for them. And so we're reminded here of a very important point in the Christian life. Proximity to Jesus does not equal salvation. We have to remember that, especially maybe those of you who have been raised in the Christian church, raised in Christian households. Proximity to Jesus does not mean salvation. Um, Jesus teaches that lesson throughout Mark's gospel, and he speaks to the, uh, that young scribe, and he says, you're very near the kingdom of God. But near is not good enough, is it, friends? You need to be in the kingdom. Proximity isn't salvation. Judas, his status as a disciple doesn't save him, just as our status as a churchgoer doesn't save us. You, know, you can read your Bible all you want. You can uh, memorize your Heidelberg Catechism all you want, and you should do those things. Look at me, an OP pastor telling you to memorize your Heidelberg Catechism. Um, you know, sing the hymns, memorize the Psalms. These are all great things, but they can never be a substitution for faith, can they? Isn't that hard for us, though, to fall back on, on what we're doing and think, well, I know all the answers. I go to all the events. I'm even at evening church. Who's going to be here tonight, I wonder, right? And wear that as a badge of honor. I go to evening church, right? None of these things save us. In fact, the closer you are to Jesus, yet without having saving faith, the greater condemnation you will receive. Hebrews 6 talks about that. Um, do you guys remember that passage in Hebrews 6? If you want to look there, verses 4 through 6, it says, It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and who have tasted the heavenly gift, that is to say, who've been in part of the church and, and who know the good things of the gospel, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, but then have fallen away. It is impossible to restore them to repentance since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So Judas' decision to betray Jesus or to lose Jesus, to lose his proximity to Christ and his part in the covenant will come at great cost. Of course, I'm speaking, when I say it comes at great cost to Judas, what do I mean by that? What will it cost Judas? Judas, his soul, right? It will cost him his soul. But you know, Judas is thinking the same thing. If I give up Jesus, it comes with great personal cost. What is he thinking? Huh? What's he thinking? What cost will, will he gain? Money. Yeah, it's money. 30 pieces of silver. What does scripture say, right? Uh, what good is it if you gain the whole world, 30 pieces of silver, yet lose Jesus? It lose your soul. That's what's at stake here. Um, verse 11, they promise to give him money. This is not a thank you gift for Judas. This is not an honorarium. You know, he comes and he says, I, I have some information about Jesus, and they, oh, we'll give you some money. This is him. Uh, he's, he's conniving here. He's a con man. Uh, he, he knows he has connections that are indispensable, um, and so he makes a deal for himself. Um, we know what that deal ends up being. 30 pieces of silver. 
That's a little over a month's wage. Uh, how tragic when compared to the gift that the woman gives to Jesus, which they say is 300 denarii, that's almost a year's wage. That's almost a year's salary, right? Uh, so we just see this contrast, how different their priorities are. She's willing to give anything for Jesus. Judas is willing to gain anything over Jesus. And so I think we have to ask ourselves, friends, are we prone to lose Jesus in that same kind of way where we want to gain something even if it means uh, there's the, the risk of losing Christ. What are some ways in, in our everyday life where we're faced with that kind of temptation of gaining the world but losing our soul? What are ways we're tempted to, to do that? Wow, right to my heart there. That's, right? Netflix, right? Nothing... Inherently wrong with entertainment, but binge watching, it's just one episode, right? And then 10 episodes later, it's, yeah. right? And, we, and we've, what, we haven't prayed, we haven't done our devotions. So we take entertainment over Jesus, right? I'd rather, I'd rather entertainment than Jesus. What are other things? Family. That's a tough one. Because family's such a good gift, Right? Those are the really difficult ones, I think. The ones that, that are hard, to, where they're easy to excuse because in and of themselves they are actually good things. God gives us family. Those are blessings. But how often do we put our spouse above Christ, our children above Christ? What else? One more maybe? Sleep. Yeah. Personal comfort, right? Relaxation. Um, I might add to that, how about money, right, career? Uh, why, why, why take this career? Well, it's going to move me up in the world. It comes with a bigger pay increase, but yeah, I'm going to miss church, or it's going to make me compromise my principles, and yet we're, we're conflicted, right? And we face those kinds of temptations often. Uh, the, any of these things will make us momentarily happy, but again, what good is it if we gain the whole world, but we lose Jesus or we lose our soul? So that, that's the, the losing Jesus portion, those, those A sections, the, the, the pieces of the bread in this mark and sandwich. Now we want to dig into the meat with the 15 minutes we have left. Uh, it's a complete contrast to what's going on with Judas. We have this woman, um, and she, uh, they're at the, the house of Simon the leper. He's clearly not leprous or else they couldn't stay there, but it just goes to show how damaging that disease was. Once you had it, it practically defined you for the rest of your life. Uh, now, it was customary in those days when people would come into a house, uh, that, when you would have guests into your house, you would uh, anoint them with some kind of oil or, or perfume as they entered your home. But what this woman does is entirely different. She brings out an alabaster flask, and that is, it's a jar made of precious stone, perhaps marble, onyx marble, uh, and in the jar was something even more precious. So she has one precious thing. It's the jar itself. But inside is something even more precious. It's ointment or perfume made from pure nard. Nard is a... Does anybody know what nard is? Do you want, I mean, I have the answer here, but if somebody's really interested and wants to share. It's what? <laughs> it's the stuff in Mark 14. Yeah, let me tell you that. Uh, nard is an oil that is uh, derived from a very special and rare plant in the Himalayas uh, called the uh, spike nard plant. You all were wondering, now you know. And how does Mark describe it? What words, what adjectives does he use? Uh, 
There's two, and that come to I mean, I'm not looking. Let me. I'm pretty sure there's just two. Okay, costly. What's the other one? Pure. Pure and costly. Okay, so pure means it's unadulterated. What what would we call that today in our 21st century language? Yeah, organic, right? And that leads to the second one because you know, anytime you go into Ralph's or Vaughn's, anything that's organic is very costly. Okay. <laughs> So this gift, it's pure, and it's very costly stuff. And yet we have this woman who has two expensive and precious items, the the marble jar and this pure uh, oil, and it's almost as if she doesn't give it a second thought before she destroys both of them. It doesn't, notice what it says. It, It doesn't say that she loosens the lid of the jar and she pours it out. What does it say? It says that she broke the flask, verse 3, she broke it. She, she likely smashes it at the neck. And then it's not as though she just pours a little. She empties the whole thing. She destroys, she, she loses both of these precious gifts, these precious possessions in a moment. She gives them entirely over to Jesus. And the scene is a display to us of her uh, love for Christ in, Consider what the disciples say about this. They say, hey, this is worth 300 denarii. And I already said that's about a year's wage. Can you imagine in a moment giving up your salary for someone because you love them? Just like that. That's what she does. And, and, and there also probably was a sentimental value because this is likely something that's passed down through the family, something that was her inheritance. She lets it all go. The, di- the, the disciples reprimand her action And they mask their disgust by saying what? They try to sound very holy. What do they say? Yeah, it could have been sold and given to them. That money could have been used for the poor, right? And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, who cares about the poor? It kind of sounds like that, doesn't it? When you read that, is that kind of hard to stomach? Well, Jesus, what are you talking about? It almost sounds callous and rude. Doesn't he care about the poor? Of course he does. His whole life is marked by caring about the poor. He lived in poverty to show that he cares for them. But what he does here is he challenges our priorities. He challenges the disciples, but he challenges ours as well. He says, you can do all you want to help the poor, but if you don't love me, none of it matters. It's that great and uh, greatest commandment and second commandment distinction, right? You can love your neighbor all you want, and we should, but if, it doesn't, if it's not born out of a love for God, it's meaningless. So we can't properly love our neighbor if we haven't first loved God with everything that we have. And that's what this woman does. She loves God with everything that she has. Finally, Jesus sees what she has done in light of his impending Death and burial. He casts the whole episode in the shadow of the cross when he says um, there in verse 8, she's done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Um, Throughout the gospel, three occasions, Jesus predicts his suffering, his death, and then his resurrection. And the disciples never get it. He says, no, I'm telling you, the chief priests are going to, you know, arrest me, and I'm I'm actually going to die but don't worry, three days I'll rise again. And they're just like, okay, Jesus, there he goes again, talking about stuff. We have no idea what this is about. And yet here, he says, this woman gets it. She gets that I'm not going to be around much longer. She has a better sense than you, dear disciples, of the things that I've been trying to teach you, that I will be delivered over to death. 
And with this knowledge, she's done what she could. She's anointed me for burial, as it, as it were. You know, you anoint someone when they would be entombed. And in this way, her selfless and loving act is a proclamation of the gospel. It's a, it's a proclamation of the self-giving love of Jesus. And I want you to think about this. She was willing to empty her riches upon the head of him who was rich, but for our sake became poor. And in that way, friends, she testified to the greatest act of love when God testified to us on the cross where he emptied himself, where he destroyed his most precious and prized and expensive possession. He destroyed his most precious possession to pour it out on the people that he most dearly loved. Do you see how her act is really a testimony to the gospel? What she does is a picture of the gospel. Just as Christ is broken on the cross and then his life-giving spirit flows out on those for whom he's died, so too she, she breaks this jar, this, this costly uh, item, dearly dear to her heart, and, and she pours out this gift on the one whom she loves. That's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So that's her gift of love. And in the last 10 minutes, what I want to do, and we can discuss this, is I, I, don't, uh, is I want to discuss what our gift of love should look like. That's her gift of love. And I, I would commend to you that, that we can learn a lot from her. I have four things that I want to share with you. Um, what can we learn about how, what our gift of love should look like. The first is that it must be costly. Our gift of love must be a costly gift. What do I mean by that, do you think? If we're to, love, if we're to truly love Jesus, in what ways is it costly? So quite literally, it's costly in the sense of financially, right? Where we, or not just finances, but possessions. Where are we giving them, right? Uh, are we storing up treasures in heaven? Okay, what else? Yeah? Mm-hmm. Right. No, it's it, there's there's kind of a, it kind of hurts a little, right? It it costs us. Yeah. What other ways does it cost us? Yeah. If you did you guys hear that you're standing in the world, right? Can you uh, elaborate on that a little more? What did you say after that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, and we have to leave. We have to leave certain circles, certain friends. We can't do certain things that we might have done before. But if we're to love him and devote ourselves to him, 
we're going to live in a certain way that maybe people ridicule us, right? We, lose our sta- we could lose our standing in the world in that way. Reputation. Yes. Anything else? Time. Like being here right now. Yeah, right now. Yeah. How so? Mm. Even though that's not comfortable for us. Yeah, stepping out of our comfort zone. True love hurts, right? And so if we're to love our neighbor in, re- in real ways, it's going to mean all of these things we've said, giving up money, giving up time, giving up status, leaving our comfort zone. I think that's a great one. We probably we struggle with a lot, but maybe we don't think about that when it means, what does it mean you know, to, to give a, a costly gift to Jesus? Ultimately, it means giving him our lives, right? He demands, as the hymn says, our heart, our soul, our lives, our all. Um, Paul talks about being poured out as a drink offering, giving everything he has to the Lord Jesus, or to do the same. Uh, so to love Christ will be expensive uh, because it will cost us ultimately everything we have. The second thing about this uh, a gift is that it will come with ridicule from the world. And our dear sister kind of alluded to this. Uh, in this story, the disciples sadly play the part of the world, right? She gives a gift, and they make fun of her. They say, what a fool, what a waste. Uh, people say that to us, too, if we give our time, if we give our money uh, to Jesus. When I went into, uh, decided to go into ministry, you know, I was in college at Temple University in Philadelphia and felt the call to ministry, and um, almost everybody I knew was, I mean, everybody I knew was supportive. I think they kind of just thought, finally, he has something to do. Go ahead, leave. That's great. Um, but I know for my wife, Carrie Ann, she got some pushback from, from friends and even family. People thinking, a pastor's wife? Really? You, you want to you spend your life doing that? You're going you're gonna to give up you know, what you studied in college? And people will ridicule us if we seek to give ourselves to Jesus. So we have to, we have to prepare for that. We've got to bear down for ridicule. And we have a great comfort and that the Lord will defend us. People will mock us, but the Lord defends us. And that's what Jesus does in this passage, right? He stands up for this woman. The disciples mock her, and he says, leave her alone. J.C. Ryle has a great quote. He says, to learn from this, he says, let us believe that the same Jesus who here pleaded the cause of his loving servant when she was blamed will one day plead for all who have been his servants in this world, Let us work on, remembering that his eye is upon us and that all we do is written in his book. And let us heed not what men say or think of us because of our religion. That's in this last sentence right here. The praise of Christ at the last day will more than compensate for all we suffer in this world from unkind tongues. And I thought that's so fitting for us because we've mentioned... uh, Brothers and sisters persecuting in physical ways, right? Being in prison. But that's not the situation in Santee or La Mesa or Escondido, wherever you guys might be. Um, what, what way will we suffer? It's, as Ryle puts it, unkind tongues. That's what we have to fear. Not getting thrown in prison, not being killed at the moment. What we fear is people making fun of us. 
the ridicule of the world. We're afraid of what people will say. We're afraid of being mocked. Our greatest threat are unkind tongues. But the prospect of the kind tongue of Christ, or the kind speech of Christ, speaking our praise, defending our cause in the last day, far outweighs any fear that we should have about what people might think or say about us now. But we have to prepare for it, right? So our gift to Jesus, our gift of love, it will be costly. It might come with ridicule, but we have all these comforts in that case. Third thing, our love for Jesus must take priority over our love for the world. This gets back to what the disciples were saying about the poor. Jesus does not tell us not to love our neighbors. My, uh, let me restate my point again. That our love for Jesus must take priority, always take priority over loving others. Jesus does not tell us not to love others, not to love our neighbors, but he just puts it in the right perspective. He does not disregard the poor here either. He doesn't want us to neglect the poor But a gift of love to the poor will not save you, friends. We're talking about salvation. This gift of love is salvation, right? So, um, you know, volunteering your time at a homeless shelter does not get you into heaven. Habitat for humanity does not pave a road to heaven. What gets you to heaven is this gift of love where you give yourself to Jesus. And when you have done that, you will be, by his Holy Spirit, encouraged, empowered, and equipped to go out and to love the world, but it must take the priority, right? Jesus must take the priority. Any act of charity will never make you right with God. That's the truth. So, but hear me, I'm not saying acts of charity are bad. It's just a priority. No act of charity will make you right with God. What makes you right with God is coming to his son in faith, and the way we do that is by loving him. Uh, fourth thing and final thing, our love for Jesus must, must always serve as a proclamation of the gospel. That's what this woman did. We talked about that, how her love pictured the gospel. So we want to keep that in mind, that there's a proclamatory purpose in loving our Savior. We love because he first loved us, but we also love to show the world that he first loved us. We give ourselves in love for Christ because he gave himself in love for us. And so if we lose that aspect of what it means to love Jesus, then we've really lost what it means to love Jesus. He wants our love to him to be in response to his love for us. And therefore, when people see you giving up what we talked about, money, time, influence. When people see you facing the ridicule, ridicule of the world, when they see you prioritizing Christ over everything else, they will see it as a proclamation of the gospel. That's what Jesus wants your love to be. He wants it to be a proclamation, a presentation of the way that he has loved you. Does anybody have any comments to add to, to this list or questions or anything? Mm-hmm. Great. I love when I do that. Well, you've seen an act of love in this passage. Uh, You've also seen an act of hate. Uh, The love leads to everlasting life. The hatred leads to losing Jesus.
and everlasting condemnation. We've seen how this woman, so moved for love, uh, by love for Jesus, was willing to give anything for him. And in comparison, we've seen how Judas was willing to gain anything over him. So I would encourage you, friends, don't lose Jesus for the sake of things that are passing away and can give no lasting satisfaction. Rather, draw near to him. See him as the true lover of your soul, the one who is willing to be broken and poured out for you. See this Savior and love him in return. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this time uh, that we could spend discussing what it means to love you and what it means to, to give you a gift. We know that, that, that no human being could ever give a gift to God that you should uh, have to repay us, that we could ever put you in our debt uh, because you have given us the greatest gift of all, everlasting life in Jesus Christ. But we do pray that because of that love, we would be so stirred, O oh Lord, to love you in return and that we would count the cost, that we would bear the cross, that we would suffer the shame in this world, and that it would all be worth it, Lord, because we recognize that you are worth it. You are worthy to receive all honor, all power, all glory, all dominion, and all love from us from this time forward and forevermore. So we pray to you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you guys for your participation. We'll see you tonight. Lord willing.